Good news. As a subscriber, you are automatically entered to win a 6-0 album Twinsman. We're giving it away on March 1st, and you'll hear lots more about it in the coming weeks. I've already recorded a conversation with Shaper Matt Parker, uh, reviewing the surfboard, doing a deep dive. He and I are actually uh, the same size, so he shaped this specific board, wrote it a few times for R&D purposes, then he gave it to me, and I've been writing it all through the month of January, and now it'll be yours, gently used, loaded with our own underachievements and self-loathing. No, I kid, you'll love the board, and you'll hear why I love it in the coming weeks. Anyways, thanks for the subscription support, without which today's show wouldn't have been possible. So, enjoy this one. Son of iconic surfboard shaper and longtime surf shop owner John Mel. Today's guest first entered surf media's limelight as part of Santa Cruz's progressive skate-inspired surfers. While similar movements were taking place elsewhere around the globe, one thing separated the Santa Cruz contingent of surfers, and that was a storied, notorious wave about an hour north in Half Moon Bay. Surfers around the world were beginning to incorporate airs into their repertoire, but few outside of Santa Cruz were equally adept at charging frigid 30-foot waves. It's an area that values discretion and perhaps even anonymity, so most of the early performers and chargers' names are only discussed through local lore. But then came guys like Richard Schmidt and Kevin Reed. They garnered media attention, but they never really committed to the requisite full-time trips to Southern California and Hawaii every year, into the surf media epicenter to stoke the embers of potential surf fame. Then, in the late 80s and into the early 90s, this Santa Cruz movement coalesced, centered around an equally talented couple of surf filmmakers and photographers who largely followed a path of global distribution and networking and inroads paved by local surf biz icon Jack O'Neill. In stark contrast to the bright, fun-centric, day-glow 80s surf imagery, the moody visuals provided by Tony Roberts and Chris Clough under Northern California's overcast skies were serious. While everyone else seemed to be focused on having fun, it seems that the crew up north were busy working, keeping their heads down, and progressing. Their nicknames made their new audience feel like we had instant access into their clique, the humor, the acerbic wit, and these nicknames became household names. Rat Boy, Barney, Flea, Skin Dog. Had they thought to brand themselves as a generation propelled by momentum, they might have an HBO documentary by now. But to be honest, they'd shirk the offer. That really wasn't their MO. And this lack of definition and lack of self-branding is probably a more accurate reflection of their movement anyways, because it wasn't homogeneous. East Side is different than West Side, and in addition to O'Neill's rubber, there was Hotline. The Acker brothers brought Billabong to town. Ratboy focused on legitimizing airs as a functional surf maneuver, while Galley and Adam the Rodent Rapogel focused on the championship tour. And right in the middle of it all, standing six foot two and 200 pounds, was the Condor. His wingspan was particularly helpful with paddling nine foot surfboards. 
He first surfed Mavericks in 1990, and within four years, he had established his place in the lineup. Through a dogged work ethic, a penchant for weather and swell forecasting, and an acute sense of surfboard design, the Condor has maintained that position at Mavericks and in all realms of big wave conversation for the preceding 30 years. He earned the role of big wave tour commissioner, partially thanks to his 2012 big wave world champ crown. He won the Mavericks comp in 2013, and he competed in the Eddy in 2009. Back in 1998, he ranked eighth on the Surfer Pole Awards, but you probably best know him as Peter Mel, commentator for the WSL, where he's maintained a key role since 2014. All of these things, all of this experience and drive positioned Peter perfectly one month ago at that spot that he had first surfed 31 years prior. On January 8th, Pete stroked into a wave that is arguably one of the best big waves ever surfed. And it is also the reason for our chat today. So without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my chat with Peter the Condor Mel. There's a, there was a bunch of clips, but the clip from January 8th just kind of trumped all those others. But any of those others would have been highlight clips in any other season. So this is true. Tell me about the season. How did it start for you? And Well, um, wow, it's been a long year. I guess we could start with that. I mean, considering all the changes that had to go through, I mean, um, for me personally, this year has been pretty different, but also very cool. Um, you know, a lot of connection with family being a big part of it. I think that's kind of happened across the globe. Uh, you know, you start getting centered around your home. You start adventuring within a lot little closer proximity. So, uh, you know, I've been doing a bit of that really, to be honest, just exploring different stuff here in town. Cause usually I'm traveling, right. I'm, I'm on the road either to, you know, part of the tour or, or I'm, I'm chasing waves somewhere. But so this was, was a little bit of a different year. Um, you know, you always anticipate, you go through summer and you anticipate, um, by the way, our store had a really busy summer. I mean, it was the COVID summer was a <laughs> huge, uh, business boost, I think for, for definitely for the hard goods um, Good. in the surf world. So I kind of worked through a lot of that summer. It was, was pretty action packed. It wasn't a lot of great surf. So it was a lot of focusing on the store, but then once the season got started, I mean, you have this kind of, uh, it, it was interesting where you think of La Nina and El Nino and those, those uh, weather patterns you think, okay, this season, how's it going to be? But I, I kind of like the La Nina seasons here in Santa Cruz, just because not always going to be the biggest swells, but, always going to be really good conditions. I mean, you push all that storm, uh, you know, north of us, we usually get pretty good surf still. And so I was anticipating a good season, especially since I wasn't going to be going anywhere. Um, my, you know, there was a, a blessing in a, in a bit of a, not a curse, but a, you know, a bit of bad news is that my mom's been struggling with a little bit of illness. So I was uh, scheduled to go to Maui uh, at the beginning of the season, which was early December. And that's when our first string of swell started. And I literally had pulled the plug on going to Maui because of my mom. I just wanted to be there for her. She wasn't doing real red hot. So I was like, I wanted to hang out and, you know, spend that time with my family. And so they're only going to have me come over for one event over there, go to Maui. Um, and so I kind of just said, Hey, you know, WSL okay with me. I'm going to stay with my mom. And they were like, no problem. 
Um, and then in, all of a sudden, you know, the surf started right there in the beginning of the season, that first week and week and a half of December, very similar to the very first week of January, it was, it was pumping and there was, you know, we surfed Mavericks probably, you know, half dozen times in the very beginning of the year. Uh, there was that December 8th day, which kind of really kicked off the season um, for the big stuff. Cause it was, you know, we were right kind of the outer reef, which doesn't happen every season. You know, we get to do that occasionally when, you know, there's massive swells, but not clean, consistent 25 foot, which is what we got on that day. So the start of the season was awesome because there was a bunch of days around that, not just a, you know, one big day. It was kind of warm up days and getting tuned up, getting lineups and getting boards dialed in. And then all of a sudden the December 8th day happened. Everybody came to town and it was a, you know, full shindig and uh there, i got a couple great waves john got a couple great waves um and that kind of really set the tone for the season really i mean before all that there was some fun surf but that was the first kind of mavericks hit um and that kind of got everybody kind of pumped up because there was enough days in a row that um you know you start to get a little bit of rhythm and that just kind of rolled into because it, it didn't really ever get small in december it just was kind of up and down but it kind of slowed down the back half of it around christmas and then right back into it again um, in that beginning of January. And again, that beginning of January from the very end of December through January, we were surfing it every day. Like literally I was looking at my, my launch fees that I've been paying <laughs> every day. I was like, man, I mean, we had like 25 launch fees already this year, like 15 bucks a pop, you know, but, um, yeah, it literally was so consistent and it was consistently big, you know, it was consistently enough that Mavericks was breaking and, and the conditions were just unbelievable. I mean, we had glassy all day long. Um, you know, if it did come up, it was light winds. So it was, it was one of those kind of seasons that, and I remember having a, a La Nina season. I want to say it was, gosh, I can't so bad for years, but there was a, a season that we did get a lot of days that were 15 foot and 20 foot kind of thing, which with great conditions and that was a La Nina season. So I almost in a weird way, I kind of anticipated it um, just because I, I love being able to surf in good surf with good conditions, which you don't get it every year. What do you do in terms of preparation in terms of um, expecting training? It? Yeah. I mean, that's so you're 51 now, is it 51? Yeah. Okay. So were you gearing up for, you know, a La Nina where you're going to be surfing Mavericks 20 times in a month? Um, no, I mean, you don't anticipate yeah. that really, but I mean, I, I did anticipate having a good surf season. And I think that was the big part of it was that I had already been surfing a ton. And, and if you're surfing a lot, you're pretty okay. fit, right? Gotcha. I mean, that's one of the things that, that I've always kind of valued is if, you know, you're surfing once a day, you know, and if you're getting a couple sessions in a day, which is something that kind of our season has been able to do because, a lot of times I'm working and it's like, okay, I have a couple hour window, but you know, if conditions have to be good, you know, that tide has to be right. You have to know where to go. And and so I kind of luckily living in town, you know where to go to get good surf. And so right. you can go, okay, well the tide's this way. Oh, it's like a swell swell or Northwest swell. I'll go here. And generally the conditions are good. So it's kind of nice having that. And I don't have to worry about crowds anymore at 51. That's good. <laughs> Santa Cruz, right. It's like, you kind of, luckily enough, you can, you get your fair share of sets, you know, and it's just because most, you know, everyone in the lineup. So it's, it makes it a little easier. Um, it's not like the North shore where you're just sitting there at the bottom of the bucket. Right. Totally. I, uh, <laughs> heard you telling Kaipo on any kind live that, um, you actually were just kind of mapping out the season. You were planning just to introduce John. You got a new ski, but you were 
planning to be on the ski and introduce John to Mavericks and probably not going to be surfing that much. Yeah. And that's kind of, I mean, I, I have a, I had an older boat, so I was, you know, anticipating, you know, the new boat's nice to have just because you don't want it to, you know, as good as my older ski was to me, I, I still feel like, you know, for, it was an Oh four. So it's, you know, 15 year old boat. So you generally want to upgrade every once in a while. So I did yeah. that. Um, and I mean, I had been inspired the last few seasons. I mean, it wasn't like it was a complete introduction for John because he has been serving it um, a little bit more. Uh, I mean, the last couple of years, I mean, he started probably when he was 17. Um, so that was kind of his first session. And then he's, you know, it wasn't a great season last year. We literally had, we drove up there twice um, the whole season. And Crazy. it was, it was cruddy. Um, we had one other day that I was gone that w- that happened that was pretty fun in the morning, but then it was done by the afternoon. So it was like, you know, every season's different, but that was horrible season. The season before that we, we had a pretty good run I, and there was a good couple week period, I think in January where we got some pretty good surf two years ago. So I was still doing it. Um, but I don't anticipate doing it 25 times in a season. That's for right. sure. So it was kind of nice to have, Again, I think what it was, it kind of came down to, it's like the, the desire, right? As if you're out there and you're looking at it and, and you feel like you can do it, like the desire was there. So I kind of, um, you know, just follow that, follow that gut and how that feels. Um, you know, and I guess the season was one of those things where it just felt pretty good all year. Um, it stood out to me this season, I don't know, just maybe in the last month or so that the guys who are really setting performance standards are all late forties, early fifties, which is the first time that I ever remember this happening. Nathan Fletcher's heir, you know, for the stab high thing, he's 48 years old. Kelly's still at 49. Um, there was somebody else too in that. Oh, Tom Curran last week with free scrubber. He's 56 yeah. years old and he breaks the internet yeah. with that thing, you know? So anyways, I think it, it makes a lot of sense for big wave surfing in that, your knowledge out there. You have decades of experience over some of the younger guys who flew in just for that swell. And so positioning matters and I mean, everything matters. And so I don't know where like the fast twitch muscle fiber that you might need to do air reverses in one foot waves, you know, you don't need that for that style of wave. It seems like experience would matter more than maybe what would matter in small surf, but Tell me about, so tell me about, um, that day specifically and how I know that you were saying that a wave that you got on December 8th kind of informed your positioning for that wave that you ended up getting on January 8th, one, one month later. Yeah. Um, I would say that there was, I mean, there was a lot of footage I was able to kind of look through, um, now that everything's documented, you know, it's pretty crazy. I mean, you get iPhone clips sent to you literally mm-hmm. from for in the water, right? People are sending them to you. So you like, you can review them if you wanted to right after the surf. It is pretty cool. Um, you know, and it's, that's what's Mavericks is, is so nice. It's got this big channel and it's pretty, pretty easy to film. I mean, anybody can do it. So yeah, you see a lot of footage and, and, and being able to have access to it and dissect it and get closer looks at it. I mean, you know, literally a computer now you can kind of scrub frame by frame. And so it's one of those things where, um, it's available. Um, it, I would say that the December 8th day I was sitting there and I, there was a couple ways I got early that session. Um, you know, Twiggy got that one big one too. Kyle Lenny got some big ones on that December 8th day and, and just watching 
those waves as well and just dissecting where we were taking off there was still another basically you know 20 yards or so you could probably grab a bit deeper and get behind it um and that's one of the things i've always kind of you know had visualized but just never had the time to execute it or even got the opportunity so again when you start to get a little more comfortable you have the confidence in your equipment you know you're getting a lot of reps um that kind of helps and so i kind of just push myself to go a little bit deeper this day specifically it was a it was kind of a unique day in the morning it was um it hadn't really picked up it was forecast to get pretty solid the buoys were showcasing there was about a three-hour period where i was going to get above 20 feet um that day and literally i mean the, the buoy systems are so good now i mean being able to dissect you know the pulse of the buoy and when the peaks of the swells are going to be and and knowing all that information, which is experience too, of just watching it and seeing it all the time. Um, that that day I, I saw that there was gonna be a, be a peak and, and John was kind of amping to go in the morning. He surfed all morning and I kind of watched and did water safety for a few of the crew there because there wasn't a lot of the safety crew out that day in the morning, just because it hadn't come up quite a, enough yet. It was still kind of slow. But then, you know, about 11, I say 11 30 or 12 o'clock was when that pulse was starting to hit and it was supposed to be for a couple hours between 12 and 3. I got the opportunity to go on my turn and I there was a couple bigger sets that were starting to show so I kind of just was like I'm just gonna go grab you know one off that spot and go sit on it <clears throat> and it literally probably 10 minutes in the session I had positioned for this for that spot and and just pushed myself that much deeper and a set came and turned around and um, I, I thought the way it was going to be when I, when I look at it and watch it again, just dissecting it, I thought it was going to let me in or, or right away and just let me get to my feet, but it didn't. I had to work for it a little bit, um, which kind of can be a little bit dangerous because you can put yourself so far behind it that you're not able to get behind it. You know, it's just, it'll close out on you. But luckily I got to my feet and I had enough time. And at that point, everything goes to a blur. Okay. <laughs> I was so, curious about that. Yeah, it literally is. You're so hyper-focused. I mean, I, I understood it was, it was a, I was deep. I understood that it was, um, the, the only line I could take was through it. You know, it, yeah. if I had gone straight, I would have just, you know, it would have been the worst case scenario. So literally the best place you can go is straight up in it. And you'll see the most generally you see, even at Yahi where at jaws guys, you know, the, they're going straight in the hook and that's going to be the best place to be is underneath it. And hopefully you're not going to hit the bottom or if you don't yeah. make it out, uh, and it closes out on you, at least it's not going to be a lip to the head, right? It's just going to be around you. So I just went up into it. And at that point, as soon as I got around that kind of chunkier stuff, the slabby kind of weirdness, um, it, it, you know, again, I'm reacting in those moments. So I don't even know what I was feeling or seeing at that time. But as soon as I got up into the hook, um, everything smoothed out, the board smoothed out. And it was just like, at that point, I was enjoying it. And I was just like, look, this thing's going to stay open. And it was pretty obvious just because it had this really nice kind of cup to it. And it wasn't going to do the, you know, you can see it kind of start to run away from you if it's going to go up and barrel up, which usually maps does. It kind of barrels to the corner. It doesn't mm -hmm. stay open and turn and open up, which this one had that look. And sure enough, I just was, wow, this is actually going to work out. I almost feel awesome. I almost feel like the wave wouldn't have been makeable from the main peak. Like you needed to be that 20 yards deep or chipping into it. Yeah. And that's, I think it, at a certain size, you know, the bowl does get unapproachable. It's just okay. too vertical. It's too, you know, and a real 20 foot wave, which 
translates probably 40 foot on the face. It, it just becomes too much of a tight transition. There's not enough ability to get in it and you got to take off. And, and that's always what we had been doing when we were trying to catch those 20 foot waves was you just sit and you try to get as deep as you can without being too deep, which, um, you know, and then you're riding in the shallowest part of the, of the wave. So we always anticipated and thought that you could get behind it, but how, and there's only a certain size and a certain direction that it kind of starts to make sense because it'll lift outside and get you that kind of chip in behind it. It's just really scary to kind of backdoor section like that. You know? Absolutely. Or to even <laughs> sit in that spot because it's probably a perilous spot if there's, you know, if you make a mistake, a yeah, it's not, I mean, that's the thing you're sitting outside too. It's not, it's not just deeper, right? It's outside and deeper too. Okay. Right. So the kind of the, the way the reef kind of shapes, I mean, it's so unique too, because after that day, the eighth, then the 10th came, right. Which mm -hmm. was the much bigger day. And um, the same thing, I was just thinking to myself, Hey, I want to go sit, uh, you know, and today could be the day. If you line one up, it would be the biggest paddle wave you could ever get in your life. Right. And it was doable the way we we're seeing it just because the conditions were there. It's just a matter of being in the spot. And all of a sudden this, this lineup that usually is only, you know, uh, you know, 50 square yard bowl, right. Um, all of a sudden now became a 350 square yard bowl, right? So you're trying to figure out where you wanted to be for certain set waves. I mean, I, I was sitting a hundred yards away from Kai Lenny and, and, um, and Nathan flat or uh, Florence, they were sitting kind of off in this, you know, sitting directly outside of the bowl, but like 250 yards outside of it. And then I was sitting like a hundred yards deeper and a little bit inside, um, mm -hmm. trying to get these chip shots that were over there that I thought I saw. And so we're all kind of trying to analyze it because we don't know. We're just right. trying to figure it out. But what, one thing I could sense was that the water was, it was really unique. The water was super glassy kind of over the shape of the reef and almost had like a little bit of heightened to it. So you could kind of almost see the reef or maybe I was just tripping and I was so hyper-focused that I was thinking I was seeing the reef, but I was literally trying to visualize where these reefs are, where the shallow spots were and just reading the water as best you could to kind of see it, you know, and you can kind of see like where it falls off into deep water. You know, it just, there's a subtle little change in texture of the water, but just analyzing all of that. That's and that's the funnest part of all of it, right? And you're triangulating the whole time. The current's moving you. Set waves would come and it would pull you off the reef. So you always are like calculating and readjusting to try and find your spot and sit on that spot. And, you know, the, that's why I love it so much, I think, is because you're so hyper-focused on all of that that you're just so in the moment, right? Because you have to be. And it's heightened, right? Because of yeah. fear and adrenaline and whatever else it is. It's like you literally turn into a superhero. You know? and the it's consequences. This, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, how hard is it to triangulate and to maintain position out there? Do you have markers on land that you can use? Yeah, I, I do. I've got a, you know, a bunch of them. There's, there's a, it's pretty nice because there's um, several things you can look at as long as it's clear. <laughs> that's yeah. one of the things. You get, we get fog and we get haze, but... Um, I've always found that if, when you're triangulating, if you can look to the furthest point you can see away, right, and then bring the next point you're trying to triangulate behind it, if you're, if you're able to line up something that's kind of closer and farther away, it's almost a more precise of a triangulation. At least that's what I've found. So I'm always trying to find that furthest point away and then one that's a little bit closer to the cliff. And so as soon as you get those kind of spot on, that's when you know you're in the spot. So it's always, it's not just triangulating in a triangle it's actually right. lining two spots up on a hill right and then you're doing the same thing in the triangulation so you're lining it up so it really gives you a very 
precise location. And until I get my Apple Watch to tell me why my spot on the right <laughs> my GPS spot. I never even thought about utilizing that. It would be rad. Yeah, I mean, is it is it that accurate? Like to the foot, probably. I would say it's pretty close. Close enough. Closer right? than I mean, our could, visuals would be for the triangulation. I would say so. I mean, it, it, the only thing is you'd have to have an app that would say, okay, you're falling off of it or whatever. Because that's the thing too. It's like certain sets move you one way, you know, certain mm-hmm. size of wave will move you a little bit. And there's all these things that kind of happen when waves move by that pulls you off the reef. And, and then all of a sudden the tide changes and all of a sudden it pulls you a different way. And so you're always, and the wind comes up and changes again. You know, you're always, that's why it's, like I said, if it's just like, computer telling you would be <laughs> yeah I, I like the triangulation part of it it's way better <laughs> is there anybody else that sits on that chip shot spot uh yeah no there's guys that have oh, okay. i mean it, we've all uh, attempted it over the years and made moves to do it i think that i probably um have tried to figure it out the most i guess i mean i've i've sat out there and gotten skunked too you know there's plenty of days where i've been trying to push myself to sit out there and get one get one and get one it never happens so um that's just part of it and and there's like i mean there's yeah there's a few guys that are on it for sure um after you kicked out of that wave you sat there on your board what looked like just soaking it in what what was going through your mind then and is that what you were doing yeah no i was for sure kind of that's a great feeling right um, is the contemplation. It's the best part of it, to be honest, because there's all the preparation, right? So you're always kind of, and that's kind of cool too, because you're always trying to dissect and get the best stuff, best equipment, you know, everything's got to be right. I love that preparation part of it. Um, the actual like act of doing it is a lot of times a blur. Um, and that's why I think you're, cause you're so in the, moment and so clear in the moment that you're not really remembering anything at least in that might like it's hard to even recollect waves you know in a session you're like oh that was it that wave or you know but then the the reflection the the time afterwards the drive home i mean i remember the drive home that was like an instantaneous kind of kick out because i knew it was a special wave so it was pretty pretty clear i guess and so that kind of kicking out moment of sitting there I did want to soak it in, you know, and, yeah. and the lineup was going bananas, right? I mean, these are my, my son, one of my best friends and Jamie Mitchell, best friend in Kurt Myers, they're all in the, there and they're just losing it, you know? So it was a good, good rad feeling, you know? So yeah, I was definitely soaking it in. I was almost bummed at Jamie for interrupting it for you, <laughs> but I knew like he had, he had, I mean, you know, you would, you would want to celebrate with him and so it's all yeah. fine, but I, because I don't know that people always have, maybe this comes with age too and um, experience, but I don't know that people always have the foresight to soak it in. They want to celebrate and they want to yeah. like go and high five, but that moment is um, fleeting and you never yeah. get another, another chance at it. And so you were very, in. you were wise to just yeah. sit there and be like, oh my gosh, let this kind of wash over me for a minute. Yeah. And I think a lot of it too is surfing too is a very individualized sport in a way. So you can kind of gain that, that kind of, whereas team it's like, Oh yes. And you're thinking right. about a touchdown. It's a touchdown dance with the team, you know, kind of thing. Right. Like, whereas, whereas I think if you've got a guy who, you know, what was the guy's name that climbed, um, you know, free um, climbed. Oh yeah. Free solo. Uh, free Alex solo. Yeah. So, I mean, that guy, I mean, he, he got to the top of that play of this and he was by himself for probably a pretty long time soaking it in because totally 
right? And that's kind of similar in a way. I think it's sure. like him climbing that mountain. He is he would probably have visualized every crack and cranny to get up to the top, but when it was happening, and he did it so fast that he was just in in a zone, right? Like yeah. it's kind of being in the zone. You just are literally re- you're reacting, right? And so you don't really remember. You're just mm-hmm. doing, and I think that's um, that's part of the allure of why you know I like doing it. You know, big wave surfing. I feel so. I guess this question is irrelevant now that you've explained that um, your brain doesn't process the wave itself. You're just kind of in automatic mode. But my original question was going to be lots of times when I review footage of something or look at photographs from a vacation, let's say my actual memory starts to get washed away each time I view it and it gets replaced by the viewing of the thing, you know? And I'm, and so I'm always apprehensive to tell a story too many times or to look at the photo or video too many times because I want the initial experience of it to be the main experience of it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. How can you rewatch that wave? (laughs) (laughs) And, and I, and I've gotten to a point where I, I mean, I have as a screensaver, I have a, a shot here that I have, but, um, the actual video, yeah, I, I don't watch it as often anymore because now I'm starting to look at it and go, shoot, I should have been a little deeper. No way. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> right? Easy look at it and go, you could have been a little deeper. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. Um, that's just, you know, that's wanting to try and get better, right? Like it's kind of part of life. Well, that's a perfect segue actually for the next question, which is, do you feel like the best day of surfing is behind you? Uh, I don't think so. No. I mean, cause I still, I mean, you know, I'm checking the surf today. It's like, you know, I'm always looking for the next good surf. So um, I hope that desire never goes away. I want to be able to have that because it's motivation. It's um, you know, it keeps me healthy. So yeah, I hope it doesn't go away. I always think the next best day is right around the corner. <laughs> I, I've always felt that way. And it never dawned on me that you could feel another way until I saw that wave. And I just thought, well, Pete, like, I can hang it up. <laughs> I mean, not that you would hang it up, but you're not, I mean, when are all the elements going to align and you be in peak performance to make it happen again? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it could have been, it could have been the next week to be honest, because yeah. that, well, day, the next, yeah, two days later. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I, but again, I, you know, the approach was different after riding that wave a little bit too. I didn't right. have feel the need to go and put myself in extra risk, you know, um, because I kind of done that. <laughs> you know? Well, that question or the comment that I made about 50 year olds ruling it in 2021. Um, are you concerned about any kind of athletic limitation moving forward and can you mitigate against it? Um, you know, I haven't given a, a ton of thought, but I mean, I definitely know that my, you know, there's been, I guess there's been ebbs and flows. I, there, an example would be like, you know, there's times in my forties where I didn't have that, you know, ultimate desire to be, you know, charging big waves. Right. I it was doing the, you know, I taking over the commissioner role and like had done these other things in my life that I was kind of focusing on. So it wasn't something I was kind of, um, had the energy to put towards. Um, whereas I think now, like I said, with the COVID, right, it's kind of like, okay, what, what can I do to keep myself motivated? And, and surfing was one of those things because we had a lot of great surf. Um, I had the time. Um, so, it was, you know, it just kind of ebbs and flows. So I feel like I may have some time later in my life where I don't have a, a lot of motivation to surf every single day. 
Um, but right now I do. So I'm kind of just going with that. Um, Good. You know, who knows? Who knows what happens in a, in a year's time, but I know that it feels good to be pursuing and chasing surf and, and focusing around family around. It feels pretty darn good. Speaking of family around it, how does uh, John's mom feel about him being out there? Um, well, she's sitting right next to me. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I would say that she, um, she has a, a little bit of fear around it. I, I, I mean, she's had to deal with it with me for you know 30 years of our life so uh, i think she's figured out ways to get through it um i don't know if it's something a master plan for her to like yeah i want john to surf mavericks every single time it breaks you know that's something that i think she leads up to john and she doesn't really show her influence either way she'll definitely you know stay safe put your sunscreen on you know you got your flotation vest you know kind of stuff like that for reminders um i will say that uh, when we are surfing and, and we're gone for the day and it's the two of us that um, things around, uh, you know, the, the house and everything gets cleaned up. So I know she finds ways <laughs> to focus her energy elsewhere. You know, a lot of the Hilarious. stuff at the shop gets taken care of, you know, so it's, it's pretty cool that she has found a way to distract herself from it. And, you know, I try to do a float plan with her. It's like, Hey, we're going out. And then when I'm done, I try to let her know that we're done so she can have that at ease. Cause I know it's, it, it must be stressful. I mean, it's stressful for me and I'm out there watching yeah. my kid and he's sitting there trying to pack laughs and I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> totally. you know, like, uh, you know, I don't, you know, I, I understand the, the dangers of it. Um, you know, and I, I think he does too. And cause he does take a very good and calculated approach to it, but at the same time mistakes happen. So you, you're, you know, always being aware of that. So there is a, a I, I'm a little bit more scared for him than I am for myself. <laughs> I would imagine for sure. Actually a lot more scared. <laughs> yeah. Do you, have you guys found yourselves, either of you, uh, in any real harrowing situations? Um, yeah. Um, we actually, I mean, he does. I mean, this is the thing is, is that, you know, we've been doing a little bit of toe surfing together and unfortunately and, and fortunately, we don't have a lot of places to practice. Right. So, I mean, it's great that we live in a Marine sanctuary. Um, and it's great that I don't have to see a bunch of yahoos running around on jet skis, but at the same time, it's how do we, how do we train, um, to learn how to drive these boats? It's very, very crucial. Um, and to get that experience and, and where do you do that? You know, it, going out at Mavericks when it's 10 to 12 feet and, you know, not a lot of guys in the water and you're trying to tow around when it's, you know, it, that doesn't yeah. look good. Right. No. Kind of dumb, but it's training and it's a way to get somebody used to doing that, getting the timing down and, and pickups and all of these things that are so crucial. So it's hard to get that time. Um, and I think that's why brag is so important because um, the big wave risk assessment group, because they have all these great tips that you can do and learn just by talking to people and having these, um, you know, briefings. So those are important, but, the most important is obviously getting that experience and getting into the froth and driving the boat, knowing how it's going to work. So um, with John, the harrowing situation is sorry, long story, but uh, you know, we didn't have that opportunity. So when we did get those opportunities, it was real life opportunities, to, you know, and I had, I'd gotten whipped into a pretty good size wave and I was way, I put myself too deep because I let go early and I was trying to, you know, thinking, Oh, I'm all good. I'm going to skid into this one. And then, um, I got caught behind on it 
and it was, you know, solid wave that broke outside of the bowl. So it was a bigger than a 20 foot wave, 25 footer or something that rolled through and it, it smoked me pretty good. And, um, I came up and the next one was, was bigger. Um, and I had to take that one on the head and John didn't come in right away for me, which is fine. Cause I don't necessarily, I mean, I should be able to take a few on the head, yeah. especially if it's in, it's in the main bowl. And, uh, he ended up coming after me for the, after the next one. And it was some frothy water and he had to like pick me up and grab, you know, and do, and he did everything right. We talked about it, but going out doing it was so important. And that's um, one of those things where he picked me up. It was actually on Surfline. There was a shot of him coming in to get me and, and grab me. And that was after the second wave, which was perfect timing. You know, I don't necessarily need to go in there right after the next wave because um, that's usually a very tough pickup, you know, take a couple on the head, slows down, grab someone, you know, and I should be able to do that. And I did. Um, and he did a great job in that. And then there was another situation uh, on the 10th, which is the big day, where I was paddling and I had uh, I had gotten caught inside. And I was way out the back. Um, Twiggy had just gotten his wipeout, right, where mm-hmm. he just aired out and wiped out. And this was kind of a, there was a pretty, that was probably the peak of the swell. There was like two or three sets right in that moment. and. Twiggy had had that nasty wipeout, so the whole water patrol was chasing him down, um, and he went through the rocks. So there's like you know several guys kind of trying to get him, and he was the focus. There was another huge set that came that broke outside on me, and you know Nathan and and uh, Kai were sitting far enough to the side they got through it, but the one that came on me landed on my head, and I had to swim through it, and my cord broke, and so I was left swimming. And I remember coming up and going, wow, I'm out here. Like, I hope John's paying attention. I just raised my hand and I waved my hand and, and I'm, so I'm waving, I'm looking and he's already coming around the corner from way inside to coming around to buzz and come and grab me. And he was there instantly. So I'm just like, wow, this kid, he sees it, you know, he pays attention and uh, he picked me right up. And then that's when the, that same set, if I hadn't gotten picked up, I was sitting in the channel and we were sitting there and then another set came and that's the one that cleaned up Kai. And he talks about the one that he got pulled through the bowl and the same thing. So that was kind of a moment where I would have been in swimming yeah. <laughs> if he hadn't seen me. So again, just paying attention is, is something that's so key. And he was, he was on it. Amazing. Have you had to rescue him out of any harrowing situations? <laughs> Not yet, really. Good. Good. <laughs> yeah, I hope I don't ever have to. But I mean, it's you know, you surf out there enough, you're gonna take some some waves on the head, and it's just part of it. I mean, he he was telling me the other day he's been doing a lot of Wim Hof, which is you know all that breathing and doing ice baths and the whole thing. So he's taking it seriously. Good. But he did a negative breath hold that he held his breath for four minutes. I'm like a negative breath hold where you blow all your air out and hold your breath for four minutes. And he did a lot of breathing exercises to get to that point, to get a bunch of oxygen into his body to do that. But that's still amazing. Like if you so have that gnarly. kind of confidence, so I can go, you're going to blow all your air out and still have four minutes to go. <laughs> I think you can handle a wave or two on the head. <laughs> What's his ambition uh, with pro surfing? I mean, I'm, I'm pursuing, I'm assuming he's still pursuing a pro surf career. Uh, yeah, I would say that that would be great. Um, you know, in the industry right now with no competition and, um, you've got to be, I mean, a pro surfer these days is basically being an entertainer, right? It's like, 
that's what your job is, is to create content and be an entertainer and, and get people to watch your content. That's what a pro surfer is. It's not going to be about how many heats you win because we're not competing right now. So it's a tough time for a lot of pro surfers. You know, you have to go out there and you have to have a video guy who's going to create some good footage for you and create an entertainment and get people eyes to see it and how you can do that and be a producer and be a, an actor and a director all in one. That's kind of what it is. So it's, it's a different job now. But does he have that ambition? I do believe that that's his ambition. He loves competing. Um, you know, he's, he likes getting videos work done and he puts his edits down. I mean, he's, I wish he was better at his social feeds, to be honest. I think well, that would that, be key to, you know, to helping him prosper as a pro surfer. Do you want that life for him? Good question. Um, I want him to follow his dreams. So if that's his dream, yeah. Um, I want to see opportunity for him um, elsewhere though, too, not just one, you know, you know, have a bunch of eggs in the basket, right? And our store is the family heritage. I think is important. He's been putting hours in here. You know, he's got shifts in here. So that's cool. Um, I think he loves traveling. Um, he loves going and, and exploring. So that's something I know that I enjoyed. Um, you know, in regards to what that does ambition wise, as far as a job goes, I mean, I just want him to, to be, yeah, I mean, I'd love to see him be a pro surfer. I'd love to see him put a bunch of hours in here too, you know, so. Having the option would be a nice position yeah. to be in, you know what I mean? And, and so it, if he could, yeah. I, but I, I've been running that same calculus about what is a pro surfer for the last year or two. And obviously it no longer equates to just being the best surfer in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, that's especially true in the time of COVID when there aren't contests, like you mentioned, but the level of um, commitment it takes for Ben Gravy and Jamie O'Brien to put out two edits a week Mm -hmm. is just beyond my comprehension. Like it is a full-time thing and not only working full-time, but being on full-time and your full life kind of being on display. Mm -hmm. And that takes a really unique person a really unique personality yeah, no, I agree. type. i agree and, and and to be honest i you know as me personally yeah it, it's too much work totally <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to document every single moment of every Heck single no. moment of my life right so um it is interesting that to see how pro surfing is is evolved and um yeah what it takes now yeah it really is interesting um let's do a quick Backstory on Freeline. I know your parents opened it um, the same year that you were born, 1969. Was your dad already shaping prior to opening the shop? Yes. Okay. So he he actually started his shaping career uh, many years. He actually worked at GNS in San Diego. So That's when he was right. living, yeah, he he lived um, in San Diego for a period of time with my mom, and they were he was working down there, and he actually started a shop down there too, um, in Ocean Beach. Uh, so he had like a little, little shack down there at one point. Um, and then they kind of picked up and that was in 68, they picked up and moved to the North shore. So then he was, um, living in Mokalea and he was shaping boards out of his, out of a shop in, in the house, wow. uh, trying to just make it on the North shore there for a little while. Didn't, didn't have a whole lot of prosperity there. And, and then had driven through Santa Cruz at one point, you know, and their little drive up the coast and they kind of loved it and said, let's move to Santa Cruz. So that happened kind of, uh, you know, when they got pregnant, 
so it would have been like probably February, March, they decided to move to Santa Cruz and then just open up the first store then that summer. And they've been planted ever since. So it's been pretty cool that it's right here on the east side of Santa Cruz, right at Pleasure Point. And it really has been one door for 50 years, which is pretty neat because provided for our family for years. I can't imagine what Santa Cruz would have been like back in the late sixties, early seventies. Was it the only surf shop? No, actually O'Neill had their corporate headquarters on 41st at that time. Um, The same year Santa Cruz surf shop opened up. So it was like kind of us three on 41st. Um, Pearson Arrow, I think had started in that same era. So it was kind of an interesting because it was right when like commercial, you know, business, you know, kind of started. There was O'Neill wetsuits was kind of 52 is when they, you know, started. That's when they kind of coined the surf shop when they opened up a store at Cowles. Um, and I, you know, I want to say it was probably later than that, that they actually had the first surf shop, but that's what they, you know, 1952 was their kind of origin of date of, you know, the wetsuit same when body glove too. I think they kind of started in that same time frame. Um, you know, and surfboards, you know, the whole thing about surfboards where is it, you think about the, all the pro surfers, they all were shapers, uh, in their own right at that time, right. They made their own equipment. So it was kind of what you did. Uh, and you know, as surfing grew, not everyone wants to build their surfboards. So there was this market that kind of started them and, you know, custom surfboards was it. My dad was really big in kneeboards and that was something that was kind of huge here in, in Santa Cruz at the time. There was a pretty good kneeboard industry, I guess you could say. And he was a big part of that. Um, when you were coming up or growing up as a kid, were you, do you have any ambition to take over the business and did your dad expect that of you? Um, <clears throat> it's a funny one. Cause I would think that there was a little bit of an expectation from him that I would at some point. And I always kind of alluded that I would, but I also didn't put a lot of time in, right. It wasn't like I was at 20 years old going, Hey, I'm going to you know start managing the shop. You know, right. I, I took an interest in, in shaping boards. I did that a bit, you know, I shaped probably five, 500 boards or so in my life. So um, I did that for a little while. And, you know, I always had worked retail. I, I, worked in the factory and did ding repair. And so I always kind of dabbled in all these different things that was part of the store, but I never just said, take it over. That took a, um, you know, that didn't really actually happen until 2017, which is, you know, where I actually literally said, Hey, um, my wife and I are going to take over the store and you're going to retire. Cause he's always kind of used the, he, it was his shop. I mean, that's, he wanted to run the business. And I think it was just good timing at that point. It was like, okay, he wanted to, you know, take a lot less more time in Hawaii and not have to run the business. And we were ready to do that. So it was kind of cool that, um, you know, my wife has been part of the business for, um, you know, our whole lives really, um, together. So, you know, 25 years of marriage and, um, she's been at the shops that whole time too. So she's a big part of helping my dad, um, run the shops. And so she kind of was my, basically my other half. So I kind of did the marketing. I, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. I was a totally. pro surfer doing that and, and talking about stuff, but she was really good at being behind the scenes and helping my dad to run the business and, and giving my influence in the store. So I was always a part of it, but I never really took ownership until 2017 where I started having to write the checks and make sure that the checkbook balanced and, and yeah. that we were paying our bills. So, um, yeah, but I think it's just a good time that it, that it happened. And, you know, we did, you know, to remodel here at the store. So that was helpful for my wife to be more involved too, because my dad had his rustic way of running a surf shop, which, totally. you know, we kind of wanted to clean things up a little bit more and modernize it. And Tara was a big part of that. 
Does your dad still shape? He does. He does still shape. He's been saying though that he wants to do less. Okay. Um, recently, he he's been mentioning. It's kind of been a thing where you know, but he's like, he's like, okay, so who's going to be the next you know shaper for Freeline? You know, because I've got my stepson too. Who's Anthony? He's a big part of spends. You know, he's in here five days a week. Um, he's really good at at using the machines and doing the ding repairs. My dad's like, oh, does he want to shape? You know, does he want to come in and start using the shaping room and kind of pitch that out there to, to Anthony. Um, I don't know. I mean, I could maybe take up the, the planer here and there. It's fun. It's fun shaping it. But when you start doing it for work, it's, it's hard work. I had no idea that you actually shaped that many boards. Yeah. That's no, there's awesome. a period of, yeah, there's a period of time where I, I was doing it as part of a living, you know, and pro surfing, I was shaping boards for a bunch of folks. So it was kind of cool. I didn't realize I that. a lot. What label were they under? They're under Freeline. Oh, they were. A, okay. a, yeah, they're under Freeline, and I and I had Peter Mel shapes under Freeline. So, gotcha. I mean, and that's the thing. Like, I never ever wanted to branch out and do my own brand. I almost feel like that there's so much legacy in Freeline that that's why I just wanted to take the store over and the brand over and, and yeah. keep it keep it kind of family. And, and usually, you know, it kind of comes full circle. I mean, we're kind of in that boat right now where people want to support us. You know, so that on pop business. I wanted to ask you that actually, um, retail has changed so much, even pre COVID, like the last decade retail has changed drastically. Uh, what is the value of retail? Well, I think there's a, um, considering, and I'll, I'll pose it to you this way. I'm a surfer. I can get my boards direct from my local shapers. I can order wetsuits online. I can order clothing online. So, um, what is the value of retail with all those things in mind? There's a time when you're going to have to get some resin and you're going to have to get some cloth and you do a ding repair for a friend or whatever. You're going to come to our store cause we're going to have those materials for you. I'm going to have a box. I'm going to have an FCS box or a futures box, um, a leash cup that you're going to have to fix. And so I have all that stuff in there. So I want to have that community based availability to people, bars of wax, um, leashes, pads. Occasionally you're going to need that kind of stuff. Um, but I also feel like there's a service part of retail that um, there's that customer who happened to go to Costco and buy himself a wave storm. And then all of a sudden realized that riding away was the sickest thing ever yet. They don't have anybody to go to. They come to a surf shop and they walk into a shop. They want somebody that's going to give them an understanding of what they want to do. I mean, uh, there's a bunch of different types of surfers out there and some people don't even know what they want to be. Like, and I pose yeah. these questions and people come in and they're like, yeah, I want to get a better, I have wave storm and I want to get a, a surfboard. I'm like, okay. Well, um, you know, what appeals to you? Do you like longboards? Do you like shortboards? Um, where's your goals or aspirations to do it? And you ask these people all these questions and they're like kind of baffled. They're like, well, wait, I don't really know. <laughs> yeah. I guess I want to, I want to write a shortboard. Okay. Well, if you want to write a shortboard, maybe you want to go to a hybrid first and, and progress down. And you, so you give all these people, information and so the value of a surf shop and especially a surf shop that has clued in employees is you're going to get service and you're going to get the right stuff you're not just going to be ordering something because it looks cool and just be the wrong board and then all of a sudden you hate surfing whereas if you yeah. came into a shop like ours and you get to answer these questions about what kind of a surfer and what you need as a surf shop um, we're going to give you those things we're going to give you you know real-time information on what the best wetsuits are for the conditions you're surfing in or what you want to spend your price point. Why am I paying 500 bucks or 150 bucks? You know, and people just don't know that information until they 
get told from a surf shop. Yeah. It's the role of the surf shop has changed because when I was a kid, you had, it was a gateway into the culture. Like you had to go into a surf shop to get the bare essentials just to surf with. But once you're there, there's guys that are like way too cool that, you know, I want to fit in with, but I don't quite fit in with. And they're talking about where they surf this morning and what the tide does at different, at different spots on different days. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, um, like this portal into the culture and it's where I got all of my Intel, you know, and then I'd come back to school and share that information with friends. And I think that still exists. I still think there's, yeah, it does. It does. I mean, but I think it's, um, yeah, it's changed. It, you know, it it's more friendly now. Like the yeah. there's there isn't the um I don't know, the not fitting in aspect. Now it's much yeah. more friendly because people yeah. need their they want the customers. It's, yeah. But I feel like it also exists a lot more prevalently on the East Coast and probably up in Santa Cruz as well. I'm in Southern California and there's only a few that remain like that. You yeah. know, the frog house yeah. and stuff like yep. that. Yeah. But, and I, you find your niche and I think you find what you're good at. Um, you know, like I, for example, I mean, I, this season was kind of a lot of things are variables too, right? Like where the waves are going to be fun and how big they are and this, that, and the other, like um, when the waves are small and there's been no sand over at Cowles too, right. Which is one of the great learning spots over on the West side of town. Whereas this season didn't have a lot of sand. So it, it didn't break very often. So a lot of people had to go that were trying to learn had to come to pleasure point. And so Pleasure Point became this kind of focus of, of placing to learn. And there's great ways to do that. But I think that's what brought a lot of people, plus the fact that there was no sports and, you know, yeah. school was out like, and people didn't have their job. They were coming to the beach and this was the beach to be at. So, I mean, our, our rental surfboard business is, is good. Um, and that kind of introduces people. And, um, and then we try to give them the right service too. Plus we don't want our boards destroyed. So we kind of tell people where they need to go at high tide right. and what, what stairways to avoid. And, you know, that's all information. I do believe that when the, you know, the, some newbie comes in and, and they get this information on where they need to go and why, and they had no clue. All of a sudden they got this great information that basically saved their kids getting smashed in the rocks. Like that's yeah. stuff that's going to live. And all of a sudden they're going to be customers and they're going to return customers. And they're going to be happy about it. Good. What um, imprint in the store is devoted to surfboards? Um, I have a pretty huge rack. I mean, it, we've, I would say we've got 150 boards. Awesome. Um, they can, you know, I mean, the back has a bunch of, you know, rental stuff that we do and we do a bunch of repair work. So we have a bunch of that board room and then um, the front has, um, yeah, like I said, there's, there's a lot of space in there for surfboards. And so that's at least half the store um is filled with wetsuits and surfboards um you know the back 25 percent is going to have fins and repair and all that stuff i do have a full kind of soft goods stuff which is a lot of our brand which is you know our sweatshirts and uh, sweatpants and t-shirts and then we carry you know Volcom, we carry outer known we carry quicksilver the kind you know we carry all the major surf brands and try to you know reef and um sinook you know all these surf brands and try to give everybody a little piece of it so Good. It's supporting of, of the industry as a whole. Whose boards do you carry? Do you carry local shapers or? I do. Um, we carry Kalu Coletta, which is a second generation shaper. You know, Steve Coletta has retired and 
and moved to the points of Mexico. So um, Kalu, he used to work in here a bunch, but now he's so busy that he's kind of stepped away from the retail part of it and just doing all the surfboards. We carry his boards. We also have Pat Taylor, who has been shaping boards in town for as long as I can remember. Matter of fact, Santa Cruz Surf Shop was, he was a competitor at one point, but now he's shaping boards for us. Um, we have uh, Channel Islands. Uh, we just got some sharp eyes. So we kind of, have a pretty much a gamut of everything i do oversee stuff i do stuff from global surf which um, is a great introductory board you know it's it's kind of an easy sell because you can go okay these boards are from overseas they're made in taiwan they don't have surfers that are touching them yeah they're 750 for a longboard whereas you know you want to pay a thousand bucks you're going to get something that's made in america uh, made by a surfer servers are touching it and that's why you're paying that extra you know it's an extra easy kind of step up to, to sell yeah. somebody and, and have them go to a, a local shaper's port. Speaking and then I've of, got the Ferraris, which are all the Channel Islands and, and uh, you know, Sharp Eyes, all these best shapers and our best surfers in the world are riding their boards. So that's why they're, you know, the same price. Speaking of the best surfers in the world riding their boards, what were you riding on that fateful day at Mavericks? I um, had just gotten, that was uh, a 910. Um, I actually got a pair of them this year from Brit. Brit had, uh, you know, I, I kind of wanted to have a little smaller boards. I have this really amazing Magic 10-0 that um, was made by them about four years ago. Brit Merrick. And, uh, Brit Merrick, yeah, from Channel Islands. So Brit did the, the newer ones that I have now. And uh, they're a little bit more refined. So that board specifically was a 910. John kind of taxed the 96. <laughs> he was oh, he like, did. he did. It was like, you know, I was riding it, but ever since he kind of, he wrote it, and then all of a sudden you got all these great waves on it and all of a sudden it kind of became his part. And so I just kind of don't want to break it. I just kind of let him use it. <laughs> but I, I don't, when, when you have a good board, it's, it's hard to, to give it up. I mean, I should have asked you this earlier because you referenced how important equipment is in preparation for big days like that. I actually don't think of Brit as a gun shaper. I didn't know that he even made guns. Why did you yeah. rely on him for the season? Well, I've been relying on his, um, I mean, and, and this is realized that Brit is second generation from Al, right? So the reality is, is I'm taking one of the files that Al has been working on, right? And then this is something that came across the bank and then we're refining it further, right? So it's not something that's been just blindly made by Brit Merrick. This is something that's got lineage behind it right so um you know nowadays with the computers and being able to kind of replicate boards you can make these real subtle changes and and one of the things i i found with brit when i started because i've used a few shapers in the stable there at channel islands but brit when i got his boards for some reason they had this really <clears throat> almost like velvet it was really unique that i could sit there and see his boards and the way that they were foiled and everything they they felt like velvet right it was the weirdest thing and i told them that too i'm like dude, dude i see your boards are like so refined and and they they looked like velvet so I, anyway I, I kind of associated that with them and and i've asked him to be able to shape my boards and he said no problem and he's shaping for all the top guys um it's kind of nice that he's able to kind of fit me in and get get me a few boards and again i just have the confidence when and we've known each other for a very long time so i mean i used to compete on the we're about the same age so he was a little younger than me but we used to compete and and hang out the wsa and i'd go to santa barbara for the invitationals and he would be down there we've always had kind of a pretty good rapport 
Um, you know, we were always cordial to each other. I liked him. He liked me. And so we've had a relationship for a very long time. And then just to be able to kind of hit him up and, hey, and tell him about the equipment and how it works and that, you know, the charisma between us two is, has worked. So it's easy to talk to him. Um, he asks the right questions, you know, kind of thing. It's just, yeah. uh, it's a great rapport. Can you tell me anything about that board specifically and what made it, what allowed it to put you in that situation and perform? Well, I think a lot of the initial equipment that I got from, from uh, Channel Lands in the beginning. So Scotty Martinson, do you know who Scotty Martinson is? No. So he, he, he worked at CI. He's been there forever. He um, used to be at the surf shop, actually, the Channel Islands surf shop in Santa Barbara, and he managed that, and that's where I met him. Um, but then he's kind of transitioned to running the accessories. But he's also a great surfer, and he's a bigger guy. So I actually ended up getting my first gun was Scotty Martinson's board. It was Travis Lee was working at CI at the time, and he said, oh, I got this board I can give you, you know, uh, Scotty broke his leg. He's not gonna be able to surf this season. So the sports, you know, it's new. It's, you know, it's perfect for you. I'm like, okay. And so he brought it up to me and it was right before we were going to serve a Mavericks event. And like I said, it was, you know, this was probably almost 10 years ago. And he, and he brought the board and the thing was so big. It was, it looked huge for me, hmm. way bigger than anything I'd ever ridden. Um, and so I, it kind of sat on ice and I never really used it. And then I finally got an opportunity to use it. It was a crowded day. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to try it. The thing's massive. You know, I can paddle it really good. I can out paddle everybody. I'm, I'm a little bit bigger than I usually am because I picked up some weight. I'm like, okay, this is a big board. I'm going to ride the big board. And I ended up getting a couple waves on the board and it felt unreal. And uh, you, didn't, you couldn't feel the size. So it was like one of those things where um, I, I kind of fell in love with it. And the fact that you could have such a big board and, and have it work. So I, I kind of just said, Hey, make me another one of these and we'll refine it slightly. So the next batch of boards I got from them were duplicates of that board, but just done way more refined, still big. And this was just another step again of, of kind of refining them and getting a little bit smaller, but still keeping all the characteristics I loved in that bigger board. What's the refinement? What, what details are just less, less volume but still okay. keeping the characteristics of a rail i mean i guess i on big boards i kind of liked it to you hide the volume in it so you kind of take it out of the shoulders and the, and the top of the rails so you kind of just refine it slightly so you're still getting the thickness is still there but then the rails are a little more sensitive so you can kind of knife it a little bit more they're a little faster on turning onto rail those little subtle things um what was the fin setup on the board i actually it's set up as a five fin uh, box so you can write it as a thruster or a quad um, one of the things that's kind of unique to channel islands boards that i've found that i found on the boards that i've been getting is that they they move their fins up and they spread them out so you have a, a wider spread on the fin system itself so it almost is more proportional to such a big board a 10-foot board um, that was something that was kind of unique and i remember I, I really feel like this board was the original board of those that was made was a Kelly Slater board that he did big mama that he called. Oh yeah. I remember boards, that. Right. So he had the picture of, yeah. of the big mama, right. That was, that was one hilarious. Of his, so that was that, I think this board was from that, right. Okay. It's, it's, that was the original kind of hand shape that was made. And, <clears throat> um, so it's been refined since then really. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and the yeah. thing it had the big, he had the big spread and his fins there on that board too. Okay, and that's he loved really that interesting. Board for Waimea. 
Yeah. So this is kind of the fins, the fin measurements have stayed pretty similar all the way from that board that was 35 years old, probably, or 30 years old. And we've kept that going through. So this one, I rode that day specifically was a quad, but it had a very large spread, much more bigger spread than anyone else. And I also ride very small fins. I rode three, uh, three and a half inch toe fins that were Jerry Lopez futures um, on my board. So it was, you know, tiny little fins for a board all, that's all 10 four. four, all four, same size. Crazy. Yeah. So it's, and again, I, I found over experience from toe surfing and, and from trial and error that, you know, when you're going fast, you don't need as much fin. Um, it actually kind of hinders you because you get to a point where it becomes too much area and it starts to create lift. And you don't want that when you're going fast. I like to be able to have it sports sit in the water. And so that's why I like the small fins because the faster you go, you don't have the top end. You, you know, you'll still keep going faster and it won't create the lift or get weird. So hmm. it's something that I learned from going fast on a tow board. The angle you took into that wave, I mean, there was a knifing in element and, um, and also the bumps that you encountered are, is like an opposing kind of factor to knifing in you could easily have gone sideways on that like the board (laughs) the board did its job like in a really really remarkable way yeah and i agree i mean and another thing about those boards is they do have a bit of roll and v in them you know almost an old school bottom to them it kind of has a very and so that allows it to kind of cut through and have its own set of you know angling it's interesting because when you when you ride a four fin um, it, you know, you, you, you could easily have it bounce and, and actually shift to a left or to the right. Whereas if you ride a three fin and it has it bounces, it kind of wants to center itself because okay. that middle fin brings it down and keeps you centering to the, to the center point. Whereas a four fin will be a little bit weird, but once you get to speed, the four fins are so much faster because you don't have that middle fin. Um, so I've just kind of found that that's where I've been able to, to have the, um, I, I like to have the speed, especially when it's smooth. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it starts to get bouncy, I, I may switch to a to a um, normal three fin. Gotcha. Uh, do you have any interest in chasing swells at Ma- or at uh, Waimea or Piahi or anywhere other than Mavericks? Well, I had the chance, um, and I didn't necessarily pull the trigger. Um, I do have a desire to surf Jaws. It's just it's just a very intense lineup, I think, and so it's. Um, yeah, I mean, I do, but, but I but I didn't feel any FOMO missing out on the next day that I didn't show up. So no, it wasn't like I was going, oh, dang it. You know, if it fell in my lap and I was able to be out there on a, on a good day or or maybe if John even was like, hey, I need support to go there, like that might be something. But, um, personally, no, I don't have a, a super desire to be there and join it. You competed in the Eddy and there's a chance that we may never see another Eddy run again. And um same might be said for a Mavericks event. How do you feel about that contest not running? Um, I mean, I, the, the whole reason why I think I really enjoyed the Eddie is what it stood for, you know, um, as a celebration of big wave surfing. So I, I miss that element of it. The competition part of it's kind of cool to be able to kind of have that day of, but really what I miss about that is the camaraderie and the, and the sharing of, um, the history of what it is, you know, what YMA is and what, um, you know, what Eddie means to, you know, the legacy of Hawaii and to big waves. 
So that part I miss. I mean, an example being is we've got Mavericks events, um, you know, that have come and gone for many years. And, and do I miss them? You know, not really. So, I mean, I, I like competition. I think it's kind of cool because it brings on that day, it'll bring a, an element of everyone rising to the occasion. And I think that's cool and it's fun to watch. Um, but I don't think it's necessary to, to, for the thriving of big wave surfing. Yeah, it's really interesting. I um, love when there are events, I soak them up, but this season, you know, they haven't run and I'm still loving it. Like I don't, yeah. I don't rec- rec- I don't realize the void. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I would agree. I think that there's a lot enough to look at, I guess, right. There's enough it, that out there to see. I think that's the thing too, is all of it is available in our stream the day of, and in the past that wasn't a possibility and we relied on, you know, the broadcast to bring it to us. Yeah. So, um, are you going to be going to Australia? I don't know. Um, and the, there's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think uh, if I were to do my own analysis of what the WSL should do as far as trying to keep costs down and do the right thing, I think there's enough capable personnel um, to run an event uh, without a, me as a commentator being flown over. Um, so I feel like there's enough there and I don't necessarily feel like I'm going to be going to the event because of that, but um, I don't know. I, I haven't really chatted about it um, with those guys yet. So um, I would say if it was offered, it's a pretty long stint um, to do, you know, three events at least, but rumors of a fourth. So um, that's, you know, right there, that's 40 days plus travel. That's like, that's gone for two months, right? which I don't know if I'm really ready to do again. You know, and that's if every that's if everything goes well and correctly right. because if something gets locked down in the interim you could be stuck there for even longer you know exactly exactly and that's part of the reason why the decision being made to not go to Maui because of that same thing it's like all of a sudden you get quarantined or who knows what could happen you get stuck somewhere especially if you're overseas you could get stuck you know which again I, I I've been enjoying home enough that I okay. don't necessarily have to run over there. And Oz could sh- uh, close borders between states too, between yeah. events even, you know? So there's yeah. just so much that can go wrong. I don't envy the decision makers at the WSL for trying to jump through all the hoops and sort it all out. No, but I value that they're trying. You know, I think that they're, I, I totally. really love watching competition and I watch the best servers in the world at the best waves. And I think that that's enjoyable. So I, I'm definitely going to miss it if it doesn't, you know, at some point go again. Cause I feel like it's important that we get some events and we get a world champion again. I'd say right off the world champ for 2021, maybe like they can run events, but it's going to be an abbreviated year, no matter what it already mm-hmm. is. And so it'll be, you know, an asterisk next to the world title if they did, if somebody did earn one, but um, what's your, uh, it, real quickly in terms of like fitness and preparation and all that, do you do any kind of cross training and what's your diet like? Um, no, I don't okay. <laughs> do a ton of cross training. To be honest, I don't. I mean, I think that uh, I try to do the best to take care of myself now. And I've been able to do that for, you know, the 40 years of my life that I've been surfing and, uh, you know, taking care of myself and riding big waves. I, I think that, um, there's a lot of elements that go into riding big waves that are just as important as fitness, which I don't get me wrong. I do take care of myself. I try to eat well and I take care of uh, my body and I stretch. And, um, I surf a lot, but 
um, in regards to like extra training. No, and if I have a free time, I'm going to the water and going surfing. Um, I'm not going to be jumping, you know, going bike riding or anything like that. Um, yeah. I'd love to, I, I'm not a fan of the gym. Never have been, you know, yeah. I don't necessarily like picking up iron. I don't like to <laughs> CrossFit. I watch what those guys doing. I mean, shit, it's really good for you, but, um, it's a lot of extra time and a, um, a lot of extra sweat, which I think I'm, I'm mentally prepared to deal with a lot of the stuff I have to deal with. And that's what I feel like um, is important. What about diet? Is there anything you avoid? Um, gluttony. Yeah. <laughs> I try not to over, overdo anything. You know, try, if I'm going to do anything, it's a, it's a bit of moderation. Okay. Um, any kind live with Kaipo. Do you want to hype that? Is of you course. guys, you guys are doing a podcast, right? Yeah, it's, it's any kind live is any kind, right? I mean, he, he's doing it as a, um, podcast slash, you know, vlog YouTube channel, right? Yeah. yeah that's what it is. It's just a, 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 to be able to do whatever we want. Right. And Kaipo was the brainchild behind it. He brought me in to kind of help him during the time to do it. And, uh, you know, we've been playing around with it. I think, you know, getting, trying to get traction is hard. Then this, these podcasts are, uh, and blogs are, are a challenge, man. You got to be, got to be on it and you got to be doing it every week and just persistent, you know, which is something I, I value you guys doing because it's not easy. Consistency is definitely key for the audience anyways. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't post, they start complaining real quick, <laughs> but it's good for you and Kipes to stay on the mics when they're, yeah. you know, when the contests aren't running. And it's fun. You know, that's so. the whole idea behind it is just to keep it fun. And, and any kind is uh, exactly that. It's any kind. So we'll talk about just about anything. Good. Uh, final question for everybody is what was the last surfboard that you rode? What are you riding? right the last now? Last surfboard I rode is a happy two. I rode it yesterday. Uh, Brit Merrick had shaped it. It's a little bit different refinement of the uh, happy, right? But I, a little wider in the tail and a little thinner through the rails. I'm always trying to tweak equipment, but that's what I was riding over the two happy channel islands by Britt Merrick. What size? It is a six, three by 20 and a quarter by two and five eighths. It's like a proper shortboard. It is normal shortboard. I mean, with the beach breaks, like where I grew up in La Selva, which is just South of town here. Um, we got that rain going all of a sudden a little bit of swell, bunch of rips pulled out so we've got sandbars everywhere so it's awesome Big so left. good yeah it's a blast are you providing brit feedback on that board before they release it to the public i i am um, nice. I, I try to I, I put in as much uh, information i can i mean i had one previous to this one that wasn't as good uh it was a round tail it was a little bit more of a ball bearing so they're they're testing and doing things with me to to push me too, just to kind of understand what they're doing with these different boards and then gives me an understanding. Cause I, I really value that, um, is understanding how equipment, just these subtle changes and what it does to boards. Um, and the, the one previous I had was really loose and nice, but it was felt like I was kind of on a ball bearing. Um, and you know, this one, this one, a little more refined, a little more tail area. It worked a little better. I would imagine you could probably communicate a lot of that even more effectively than like elite level world tour surfers, just because you have so much experience with shaping boards. And I think it helps for sure. Yeah, it definitely helps. Um, It's invaluable. Just understanding the material. Yeah. Yeah. I've got one of those coming too. Good. Yeah. Hope you enjoy it. I'm psyched right on Pete. Well, Hey, thank you for taking so much time. I know you got a lot of obligations and you're busy. So I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me, man. Gladly. See ya. Yes, I understand 
that every life must end. Uh As we sit alone, I know someday we must go. Oh, I'm a lucky man to count on both hands the ones I love. Some folks just have one, you know, others they've got none. Thank you, Peter Mel. I have, of course, linked to the footage of that heroic Mavericks ride from January 8th on surfsplendorpodcast.com. I've also linked to uh, his family surf shop, Freeline. Uh, and you can check them out either on their website, if you're ever in Santa Cruz, certainly in person, and of course on Instagram. All of that is on our website. There's also a comment section where you can leave a note for Pete, and I will ensure that he sees that. Of course, we've got the subscription platform set up, and we would really benefit greatly from your support. And of course, we're giving away an album, Twinsmen. 6-0 Twinsmen on March 1st, and that's going to go to one of our subscribers, just randomly selected as just a thank you. And we've got more surfboards lined up for the rest of the year. So um, look forward to that on March 1st. I'll be reviewing that board next week, so you can check that out. And then also we're going to be uh, launching merch very soon, and we have limited quantities of certain things. So uh, subscribers are going to get first access to that, in addition to 20% discount on that. So absolutely earn back your $5 monthly investment here and of course you can feel great just about supporting the work it goes a long way this episode literally could not have happened without listener support listeners have been paying that support forward for years now so thank you to all of you surfsplendorpodcast.com is where you can do all of that and Chaz is uh, we were scheduled to record an episode actually this morning of The Grit But we have had kind of a tentative back and forth. He's been really kind of overwhelmed with obligations in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, covering that natural selection tour. So uh, we're not able to connect this week yet again. And then I'm going to be out of town next week, but I am going to try to try to allocate time to get back on track with the grit. So that should be back next week. Scott and I posted an episode of Spit earlier this week, and he just dropped an episode of the Boardroom Podcast with Devin Howard today as well. So you can go over there and grab that. And uh, otherwise, I'll be back here next week on Surf Splendor. So until then, this is, of course, David Scales reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and, of course, shred on. Take everything you gave. Love you till I die. Meet you on the other side.